As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hi, I'm James Richardson with a quick word on the audio treats The Athletic have in store this season. Three times a week you get the award-winning Totally Football Show with the likes of James Horncastle, Raphael Honigstein, Carl Anker and Rory Smith and me. Uh, Mark Chapman hosts The Athletic Football Podcast a flashy four times a week with David Ornstein, Adam Crafton and many others. The Athletic Women's Football Podcast will have all the Women's Super League coverage off the back of their brilliant Euros and the offside rule is back too with weekly episodes. That's not all. There are eight dedicated club shows. There's Adam Hurry's joyous football cliché show, Michael Cox's insightful athletic football tactics podcast, the offbeat TIFO football podcast, and a revamped football manager show too. You can get all of these shows wherever you find your podcast or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, and I'm now joined in the studio by Jonathan Dog McKenzie. Hi, John. Hello, hello, hello. JJ Bull the Bullard. Yes. Yes, that's right. And uh, also, ah, guten tag, Herr Stafford Bloor. Wie gates do? My gates are good. Thank you for asking, Herr Devine. Some lovely gates I can hear. And I believe your gates are the only good gates in Germany this morning because the Germans are rubbish at football. We've always known it. We've always suspected that the Germans were rubbish at football. And now, conclusive proof, John. Yes, it's hard to argue against that. It is hard to argue against And you're going to be delighted about this. I am happy about it. So, you know... Joe pretends not to care that much about the football games, but actually he loves England. I'm a sporting patriot. I am. I am. And you know who I hate? Especially when they win. Guess who I hate? Who do you hate? Germany. (laughs) No, I don't hate Germany. (laughs) Germany played well. Uh, Listen, we'll talk about that game. Just a little bit of jovial beginning to to this morning's podcast. Um, But uh, I am delighted. Anyway, as you can probably tell, we're going to talk about the, the Euros final. Um, Also, other footballing things happened over the weekend. The Charity Shield. The Shield of Charity. Community Shield. The Community Shield. Is that what it's called now? The Shield of Community. The Shield of Community. I also enjoy that one, you know? Um, That happened, so we'll discuss that. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Very much not the Shield of Community or Charity. (laughs) Well, actually, maybe he's the Shield of Charity. I don't know about his personal charitable habits, but uh, his behaviour of late would suggest... 
Not into community. Digging myself a hole. Jules Kunde has signed for Barcelona. How's that happened? I passed knowing, but John knows, so he'll explain it to us. Um, Arsenal's All or Nothing series is going to air on Thursday. Uh, Kukurea to Manchester City did not happen, so we can discuss that too. Listen, it's fair to say there's a deal of discussion on this morning's podcast, including things from Europe, Bayern Munich. Uh, they won uh, 5-3 in a game of football that all, you know, that one didn't matter. But Seb's got some takes on that. And uh, Rene Maric has joined Leeds. So John's going to tell us a little bit about that. There's loads of things to discuss on this morning's podcast. And listen, if you love football today as much as I do, then you should visit The Athletic. That's right. Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Where unlike my analysis, which appears to be just disparaging other countries um they do real good stuff and i tell you what having heard this the list this morning and discussed in the editorial call of the uh, of the the articles set to be released uh, in the aftermath of the euros final very exciting very exciting stuff there mm. theathletic.com forward slash defo mm. okay let's discuss the euros now we are going to talk, talk about the game interesting game i think uh, fun as we will say later john fun game for fans but seb um, you know, obviously, while the, the 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 football was very interesting to watch, it was it's difficult not to sort of watch the celebrations uh, after the game and feel that there's a, there's a, perhaps a bit more meaning to it than just the football. It was really lovely, actually, watching the celebrations afterwards. I was into the game, and it was uh, I don't really agree that it was a bad game. I was kind of engrossed by it, but I think everything that's been good about this tournament from a social perspective, like all the, that, that sense of community within the stadiums and the optimism and the sense of occasion that's permeated right the way through the competition that was all sort of dialed up to 11 at Wembley. And it was absolutely lovely to see and a huge number of people there. Wembley sold out, I think. Um, 87,000 something, wasn't it? Which I think was the limit of its allocation for the game. And oh, it's just great. And watching, I think the best moments actually were after the trophy presentation had been made and some of the players were interacting with the fans afterwards in a really authentic uh, overcome way it was uh, it was lovely it was one of my favourite moments of the sporting year definitely yeah yeah absolutely also um, you've written here that uh, the BBC have confirmed that it was the most watched programme on British TV this year yeah and the most watched women's football match on UK television of all time um, it seems fitting doesn't it it sure does and I, I think what's been fun is that as the tournament has gone on more and more people have bought into it obviously the um the kind of the bedrock of fans was there from the start and that's greatly increased from years before but i think more and more people sort of uh, you know got on the bandwagon as the competition rolled through and part of that is england doing well that's always the effect that a home country tends to have on a competition but also i think people i think people who are willing to give it a chance uh were able to see just the tremendous development um not just over the last sort of decade or 20 years but actually since probably 2019 just in a, in a very short space of time the, the the standard in all different departments not the standard as a whole because that was obviously greatly increased but all these different aspects so the goalkeeping we've covered we've done a video on that it's released on friday but also some of the invention and the trickery and the passing angles um to me at least all of these things uh have developed enormously over the past couple of years and, and i think people who tuned in who perhaps haven't paid attention between tournaments would have seen that too and 
Yeah, fantastic. It was just a tournament for football fans, though, wasn't it? It was just great. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Speaking as a football fan now to two people who uh, are supporters of the Scottish team, mm. it's interesting. I guess you'll both get to be kind of neutrals. JJ, I know that you hate England, so you're less of a neutral. Of I know. I'm just, I'm just teasing. I'm just, I'm reviving some of the, uh, some of the sort of uh, the, the the tension of the of the men's Euros from the year. It's before. because you've won now, and so you got so annoyed with me last time that you can just pull it back a bit. Yeah, just had to wait a year. Um, uh, JJ, you did a, an analysis of the of the game this morning. Where do you think the game was won and lost? Um, I think so. Th we've done a video on Tifo IRL, which would be lovely if you could watch that when it comes out. Um, but I think the game was it was won by the changes that both managers made in the second half. So the first half, I thought England controlled the game, but Germany were kind of letting them do that because they watched to play in transition. They're being a bit safer, kind of a bit more compact, and not went to give away an early chance or something like that. But in the second half, I think based on what they saw Sweden do against England from the very start from kickoff, they just went at them. They properly gunned for it, like really pushed them, um, pushed more players forward. So the fullbacks were far higher up the pitch. So the, the passes out from the defence were, they had to be longer basically rather than shorter passes. So it's slow. So England couldn't block them quite so quickly. So England were forced back. Germany really had them. And I think it was for about 20 minutes. They didn't look very comfortable at all. But because of that, naturally you leave loads of space behind your, your defensive line. And um, a little small switch off and play uh, allowed Kira Walsh, who is my player of the tournament for England, that I think she's absolutely brilliant. It's moving in and out of space all the time, constantly running the show. Uh, she's the one that plays that pass for uh, Toon to get in behind to score the goal. But it's because Germany are so high up and there's no cover. They're both out of shape. And then England's goal that they concede is then a little bit out of shape. It's the same sort of thing. They focused 51% of their play on the right Germany. I think it's because they had Rachel Daly, who's a forward, playing at left back. So a natural thing to try and do, take advantage if there are any weaknesses. Daly is slightly out of position. Uh, and then you've got Williamson who covers, means there's too much space between Williamson and Bright, and that's the, the space that the forward comes in to score at. I was watching that in the pub, and I, I remember chatting to the person I was with, saying England dropped, I think, unnecessarily deep about 15 seconds before that. It's so natural. When you've got the lead, though, right, in the final, so naturally you, you're a bit worried. that You see it all the time. Yeah. Um, it's the kind of thing, like, it's the kind of mentality, actually, when I think of, like, the men's team playing in tournaments, they always just seem so safe and, like, they don't want to, and they drop far too early. And I think you've got to be really brave and have really little composure, which is one of the things I thought, like, England did so well on Sunday, was being composed at the finish to scoop it over. That's really, like, yeah, I love that. Yeah, come on now. That's, that's so good, scoring that sort of goal. But a lot of the play, like, a lot of Walsh in possession, especially in Stanway, is actually in the middle of the pitch. Uh, really brave on the ball and able to make things happen with it, uh, which is how they were able to do that. This, I mean, the last goal they scored was a stramash in a corner. It's not worth analysing it. Apart from, like, incredible shielding of the defender. Like, that's, <laughs> it's so smart. At that late in the game, with, with that, you know, presumably being like your tank is pretty empty, to shield a, a bigger, more physical player behind you and then scoop it in, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty canny. You can see the panic, though, and everyone's just like trying to sure. hype it away just to get rid, because you do panic in that sort of bit. And then there's a, a really good graphic that I was using this video where, uh, so uh, uh, Kelly scores in 111 minutes, I think, and then every single England pass after that is to the top right hand side of the pitch to the corner flag weasels it's for like seven minutes at the end of the game and also i was so i was in a pub in um 
in uh, on Baker Street next to the Sherlock Holmes Museum watching this uh, just just coincidentally I was watching it with my cousin Regine and we um, we were desperate for it obviously we wanted England to win but we were desperate for it not to go to extra time because we had tickets to the theatre just over the road and we realised when it went to extra time if it goes to penalties we're going to have to leave halfway through the penalties or watch them on our phone as we rush over to the theatre um, and uh, why did I start talking? Can I tell you a story about a pub? Maybe you'll interrupt me and I'll tell you. You tell me a story about a pub. And if I remember why I started talking, I'll finish saying what I was saying. I was so angry watching this in the pub on Sunday. Right? I watched it. So you know how the, the old red line theatre in Angel is the best place to watch football I do know that, yeah. Right? So that is one, one of the best, if not the best, to watch. So you watched it there. I didn't. I went to a pub in a... It's near like Holborn Covent Garden. I was just trying to, you know, I just like to share the love a bit. Sure. But... I went to this pub near Holborn Covent Garden. I'm not even going to name it, right? Because we're going to slag it off to... Yeah, uh, so, get it. Right, so it's a sports bar. Yeah, all their TVs are off when you go in. That's their USP, sure. right? They've got sport on all, like, loads of screens. That's their USP. That's their USP. And, and the USP is switched off. So well done to you, first of all. Pints are £7.10. Are you having a laugh, right? For a normal pint. Mm -hmm. An innocent pint. And then, so that's one thing, right? I can deal with that, right? So then... So you sit down, managed to get a table in front of a large TV. That TV didn't get turned on until five minutes before kickoff. Mm. With all, and this pub is busy now with all people coming in for it. There's also other football on that could have been shown at the same time. They're showing Celtic Aberdeen in the corner, they're showing the Formula One they come in. Then the sound doesn't come on until kickoff. Sure. Until then. And then every single time they like broke play, so like half time, whatever, instantly back to music. Oh yeah, I really want to hear a bit of quiet Bob Marley now in between this lovely bit. And then, the minute full time's done, they turn the fucking sound on again. <laughs> so like, you've not got any of this like, lovely like, a moment in history for English sport. Can I say uh, now, thanks for that story. Uh, I would like to say the pub I watched it in was called The Volunteer yeah. on Baker Street. I thought it was very nice, very nice pub. Did they have the sound on? They had the sound on. Uh, also, can I say there were a few German fans in there. Yeah, there was there as well. Uh, yeah. Who were lovely. And the, the main thing like that I noticed from yesterday, I was suddenly remembering the the day of the men's Euros final last year. We all came to work here. I was chatting, chatting to producer Craig about this before, because we live near, near each other, got a taxi back that night. Even on the way to work in, in the morning, around 11am midday, horrible. It's horrible everywhere in London. On the way home, Craig and I waited for ages to get cab. It's pandemonium. It's like there's been riots everywhere. Awful. Awful. Yesterday, I'm in one of the most touristy parts of London, on the way to extremely touristy theatre afterwards, around all sorts of people this is just nice everyone's having a good time no one's fighting presumably like I don't know if this is true but like we were chatting outside the reason that they're able to sell out the stadium is presumably because they don't need all the extra stewards because people aren't trying to fight each other all the time that's what I was going to say it's just nice I, I actually enjoyed being out in central London to watch a game of football that included England in a major game yeah. without feeling afraid or scared, or tense, or uncomfortable, or like, where was I going to go and do a poo? Those sorts of feelings, you know? <laughs> it was great. That's my main takeaway. Seb, I forgot you were here on the Zoom. I've just been looking this way. Seb, you're in Germany. Are people disappointed over there? So I don't want to judge a nation by its worst oh, newspaper, do. but Bild have had a proper strop this morning. They are absolutely livid about the, the handball that never is was. Bill, this is interesting, they actually. Are, it's built the worst newspaper. What would it be comparable yeah, to here? The, the Sun. Oh, okay. It's the Sun. Because it's got, it sounds like a good name, Build. And when I, you know, I always see that attached to football rumours when I'm online. I think, oh, Build, that sounds like a serious newspaper, but no. Well, 
their sports coverage is they put a lot of weight behind their sports coverage but it's a it's a tonal thing and it is very much what you'd expect from a british tabloid if england had lost a final and it's the same thing so obviously in the in the in the days before franz beckenbauer came out and declared that germany were going to be physically and mentally stronger and that's why they would win um by penalty shootout or elf meter chasing um and then yes it got a bit a bit jingoistic this morning and there was complaints about um, uh, a female player taking off her shirt to celebrate a winning goal, which is just, I don't know. I know it was, they're just grabbing it, anything they can complain about and complaining about it. Um, so it's a little bit of a sour grapes. It's also, uh, there was reference to the, um, the 66 final, of course, and the ball that never crossed the line. It was an, I, I think Bill described it this morning as another Wembley fraud. Oh my God. That's so pathetic. Feels like, um, I don't know, because it, the thing is... It's fascinating though, isn't it? I think this is something that you accept in men's football because you just expect it. Given that all the things you describe, and these are things that I've observed too, it's been a really good-natured kind of build-up to it generally in um, in in Germany. Also, um, the German Chancellor went into the dressing room after the game and talked about... He, he pledged to kind of... To, to throw his weight behind the kind of... The, the professionalisation of... Uh, the further professionalization of women's football in Germany, which is a really nice touch. And that's the thing that you want front and center of your newspaper. Um, and so the tone is a sort of, just feels like it's dragged it down a little bit and it's a shame, but um, yeah, yeah. It's um, hasn't been received well by build. Don't know about Germany as a whole though. That's really interesting though, that the, like, the chanters get involved in talking about that stuff, how the need to then, so this is the thing, right? So it's not like a national uh, embarrassment that they've lost to England, but this is, might be the sort of thing where they then go, well, that's not going to happen again. Yeah. So then that then changes maybe some like financial uh, jiggery-pokery around in the country to try and get more money for that league to develop just so they can end up... JJ's business classes are available online now, by the way, in case you want to subscribe yes. to them. But no one's really signed up for them yet, so it would be nice if you could. I completely agree. I would say uh, in the pub yesterday, Cousin Rajin, one of the things we were saying before the game is that if, if England win, they're going to inspire young girls to play football in England. If England lose, it's going to inspire young girls to play football in England, maybe for slightly different reasons, and maybe you know there's a different kind of agenda ahead of that or a different goal ahead of that. But certainly in terms of like captivating a nation and like and helping people's attitudes towards these sorts of things change like it's obviously seems to have been an enormous success i think also like germany could make a few really simple changes i don't mean the kind of the german government but things like the Frauen bundesliga uh i don't think it has its own social media accounts so little sort of weird little own goals and weird little moments where it trips itself up. I feel like this is the point at which you think, hey, that probably shouldn't be as it is because you, what you can do, you can capture these great moments because it's a good league. Um, Wolfsburg are one of its better teams. They got to the semi-finals of the Champions League, which is no, no laughing matter given the kind of the teams that you face at that level of the competition, at that stage of the competition. And all you have to do is promote something that's already there, obviously whilst also nourishing uh so future generations and ensuring that participation rates grow and those kind of things and facilities facilities in germany for football are generally really good there's a lot of green space it's not like england you just come across them you'll be walking through a wood and there'll be a massive astroturf or something but um it's good to have that kind of that level of 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 government involvement you have a kind of a quiet moment between government minister government chancellor even and player in the dressing room and you feel like it's authentic rather than necessarily always just for the um, for the optics that you get from that kind of thing. Yeah. 
We were talking before, John, about the, like uh, you know uh, the, the the difference between the, the the feel in London on the day of both different finals. One other thing that I've noticed, or at least noticed from the the final, is I've heard people saying throughout the tournament, "Oh, isn't it nice to see football where the the, the players aren't diving or fouling all the time?" This is not the case for this final. This was a very bitty final, wasn't it? Uh, I think there was forty-two fouls in the end, and to uh, to give you a sense of what that means, I think Leeds at the end of last season were one of the fouliest teams and they were putting up about 20 fouls a game. So it's like double. Obviously, it's a longer time frame for that to happen, but it's still a big a big chunk of uh, a chunk of fouls. But yeah, sure. interesting, like, as you say, watching as a, as a sort of neutral in, the, in that sense. Um, it was it was a, a very sort of tetchy final, I thought. I, I was unfortunately unable to watch it live because I was traveling to get back from my holiday. Um, but I was following on my phone and the sense that I got from from the the game just obliquely through social media and through like looking at some of the stats was was quite different from the actual reality of it but it, yeah it was it was one of the things that I think is we, we talk about all of the impact that that this will have and I think you know it's it's important that that we do things like like you say get governmental involvement increase the profile of the women's game but for me the big thing about women's football and I've been interested in women's football for a long time I I, I got into tactics through coaching a university women's team back in 2007 uh, and back then the issue for me was always like this it's just not as entertaining as you would maybe want it to be in order to just get people watching it off its own bat and this tournament for me has been like a watershed moment because it feels as though the football at every level is like it's engaging it's it's good it's like the highest level this parity with the men's game and I think that's that's super important um, because I think in the past the part of the issue has been we're trying to sell a product that just isn't as attractive as as the men's game and so you're always fighting against that and so in the past maybe it's always it's been geared towards kids um and and particularly girls and i've been to fa cup finals in the past where the, the atmosphere just doesn't feel as good because you're not able to market it as a product which is going to get people excited and so it's always felt a little bit patronizing but i think in this tournament for me has been like a real watershed in that sense that i'm watching the game and it's it's like watching football for me and that, I think that's really super important so and, and that comes back to the sorry there's a roundabout way of answering a question but yeah the, the 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 fouling the way that the players are behaving on the pitch the the stuff like the stuff that I care about like off ball behaviors of players how they're moving as a team in the pressing you said you've noticed a real uptick in that over the last couple of years yeah yeah it, I think Seb mentioned like even since 2019 we've we've really seen like that ramp up but for someone who's like me who has worked and focused on the women's game a lot in the last I guess it's over a decade now it, it it's just incredible like and I think that's going to be the thing that's super important yeah obviously it's great to have things like this tournament pushing this into the forefront of people's minds and these players becoming household names. But if you then have a product that you can push and say, right, go and watch the WSL, go and find your local team, go and watch them. And that product is something that is intrinsically valuable in and of itself without having to be like, well, we should be doing this because it's good for, for women's sport. No, it's, yeah, it's good it's in not, and of not, itself. It shouldn't it's be enjoyable. a social cause. Yeah. It, it sh yeah. I, I, I agree that I can see it as a watershed moment for myself as well, watching the, the game yesterday. Uh, the two things I haven't watched loads of women's football before um, watching it yesterday I've really enjoyed the game I, I like I take the point like it was it was bitty and it was kind of you know frustrated but as a supporter of one of the teams it was tense and exciting and you know it was close 
And the other thing I found during this tournament is, this is more of a kind of personal thing, uh, is the array of people in my life that I now have to choose from to watch football with is much broader and much more interesting than it was before. Because <laughs> like, none of my friends, like, you know, so old Craig over there, Craig's not a huge football fan, and lots of my other friends don't like football. So I've got like one or two football friends, just pointing at JJ there, who I maybe would watch a game you with, a couple of people in the family. Every time I ask you, go and watch football. Yeah. Well, it, well, indeed, you know, take a hint, guy. But um, uh, now I watched, I, watched, uh, I watched some of these games with uh, female members of my family. <clears throat> had a great time. I really enjoyed it. You know, it was fun. It was nice to have sort of broaden the social circle of people that I'm able to enjoy a game with. And I don't know. I felt watching it yesterday. I sort of thought I can. I could see myself following following a WSL club. I could see myself. Um, I can see myself watching this regularly. You know, it's great. I was talking to Henry, one of our designers. He was watching with his mom and dad and his uncle. And he was like, this is the, the most fun I've ever had watching a game. They obviously don't usually watch football. My mom even texted me about it. She loved it, yeah. <laughs> My mother has not stopped texting me for a month. That's the only downside, mother is that she keeps texting me about football game. Also, like, she watched all the games. She watched all the games I didn't watch either. Texting me halfway through, saying a name of a player I don't recognise, saying, this player's played well. I'm like, mother, I don't know who that is, mother. I'm working. Anyway, it's fine, mother. You can carry on texting. Um, fine, let's have a break now. And when we come back, we will discuss uh, other things. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Yes, Manchester City won three Liverpool. I didn't even remember that it was three. I think I stopped watching at 80 minutes of this game, JJ, but you covered it in the immediate aftermath, um, and it was a game of football that happened, the Community Shield. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah? Yeah, it was, I think it's because it's been nice having the football back all of a sudden. I don't know. Oh, it was the, it was the Hall and Nunez thing, wasn't that it? Was That's what it was. Yeah, now I remember. That was a real bit, yeah. So, so Nunez didn't start. It was Firmino. And we did a video on Tifo IRL about this, um, which you sh I would like it if you watched, because it's, it's done very well. But it's also, I'm quite pleased with the analysis we've done of the game, particularly focused on Darwin Nunez. So there was a lot of, like, it almost became a meme over the last little while, because there was some training clips and some him missing shots in various games, and people thought he was going to be rubbish. And he was... Like crazy when he came on. He was not rubbish. <laughs> no, he's like some someone fired like a energy ball onto the pitch and just going about causing mayhem. Uh, it's a bit like when we hired you here. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, less weird than hiring you here. Yes, but he, then he, he basically just caused them loads of havoc, and then they were really worried about him all the time. And weirdly, like. They're worried when he's running at them. It almost seemed like they just didn't want to have to deal with him. And you can see that when Aki and Diaz both didn't bother picking him up to score his header for the third goal. The, the second goal was him um, heading the ball down 
onto Diaz's arm as well. She's involved in that. But it was more, he was constantly running and he runned like full speed. It's like, there's no, there's no um, acceleration. He's just at full speed from the start, like a broken <laughs> football player. It's so weird. He goes, and he's at you like constantly, just stop it, leave me alone. Like a dog, like a, like a dog chasing a ball constantly. Anyway, uh, Nunez his movement, lots of like bending his run, very simple stuff, but done at a very high level. So he's managed to get into space. And then Holland, I thought, so people were now making fun of Holland for missing a couple of chances. Sure. Well, you've got to make fun of one of them, haven't you? I think that's just the enjoy rule. them both. No, one of them has to be shit. That's Holland the rule. didn't score in two consecutive games, so therefore he's rubbish. He's that. rubbish now. I think he's amazing. And he looks like a monster boy. He's massive. Like, he is so large on the screen. I don't know how you defend against him. He's, he's, ne he's next level. He's, like, he's almost like a govern government experiment. I think know, he's been built in a lab. And, but like, this is the thing, so... Because he's so massive, he's also really fast, it doesn't make sense, and he's also very skillful. So it, he's got kind of everything there. Um, his movement's really good as well, you saw that. But what Man City were doing, I think they highlighted this really well on the, on the, the, the what do you call them, the programme that they, they showed the game on. It was on ITV, I think. Yeah. And the highlights, I, I really enjoyed them, especially at halftime, and they were showing like things he should probably have done to be trying to be better. But constantly, Man City are used to building up and, and they don't play the early pass because they want to keep control of the ball so they can play up the pitch and be in their shape so they have total control. If you do things early, you don't have control of the game or the ball, it means you can turn over possession, which means you don't, you don't have to try and win it back, basically, which makes you more tired. It's all about control of the game and possession and the space for Guardiola. But Holland was making the runs, constantly looking to bend his run to get in behind. De Bruyne is not playing it. Grealish not playing it. It's, uh, it'll be a change of mentality and there's no doubt in my mind they've worked on it in training but the other thing they'll have worked on in training is to not do it every single time so he'll make that run so the defence are aware but they won't make it so then when they do do it they don't expect the pass to come it'll be really clever like coaching things I think maybe he's told them just pass the ball through do it now and he'll be going into De Bruyne at half times like why are you not playing it early he could have been in a couple of times and then you're playing against teams like not every team will play a high line against Man City um, and Holland had the chance to show what he could do against that highlight in Liverpool. They didn't take advantage. The player I thought that really stood out when he came on was Alvarez. I, th I think he's absolutely amazing. Like, honestly, maybe I've been going a bit too far with it, but I think he could be one of the best players in the league within a couple of years. Like, really clever, really skillful. He'll be like Aguero or something, score heaps of goals. If he plays that much, I don't know how much he'll play, but he can play all around the front. There's something about him, like sometimes you see a player play and you're just like, I just know he's really good. I can just tell. And uh, I think he's one of those. Well, I'm thinking with, with, with Holland as well, um, presumably we all know how football players are. After he's been in for a few weeks and scored a few goals, he'll, he will probably feel, uh, he'll command more of a presence within the team. And then he can be the one that points to De Bruyne and says, pass me the fucking ball. Right? Well, I think him laughing after he missed the, he missed the six yarder, right? Cause he, because he hits it in such a way that he's not going to miss. You've got a goalkeeper who's very good in goal against you. If you tap it, you might miss. I think it's worse. Like Nunez's miss where he smacks Edison in the face. It's all right. The idea is fine, trying to lift it over the player, right? I might have done similar or something like that. But Holland smashes it with power and places it because he's got really good finishing and he's confident and so he probably have scored that and his first touch would probably have been better than Nunez's but uh, it, the fact is that Nunez almost made that happen it's like an, I call him an agent of chaos I think in the video I did because he, he does that and the ball bounces somewhere else you want these players in your team they're really good they're really exciting Holland I think maybe could have placed it with a bit less power but he missed it and he knew I mean he's a young guy he's on the internet a lot he knows that people will be making fun of him for that and you can see him sort of laughing about it because he knows he should have scored he's going to be amazing I've got no doubts. Okay. Well, I mean, does it? I mean, is it too preemptive to ask you? Because of course, the Premier League starts 
this coming weekend, are Man City going to win the league, JJ? Uh, I think it's just going to be really tight between those two again. Liverpool are, you keep forgetting how good Liverpool are, because they play with a bit more chaotic and energy and it's really fun to watch whereas City have control of it and because they have such good players I think that's why they tend to win games out it reminds me a little bit like like Ange Postecoglou like Celtic I was trying to work out who'd win out Rangers and Celtic I've asked that recently and I was thinking Rangers a bit more like they push things forward to it's try the same and make dynamic isn't it weirdly it's it is, like, yeah. it's like it, the, the two top teams in, in the Premiership in Scotland now you've got you've got the super controlled team who are fluid they understand how to manipulate space how to move things around everyone knows exactly what they're doing and then you've got Giovanni Broncos Rangers who are just like as you say super intense and they've actually caused problems for for um, uh, Celtic in, in, in the end of last season just through their intensity and it's it's the same thing I think that I see when I watch Man City versus Liverpool is that I always watch those games and I feel like City have pretty much controlled this game they've sort of they've always been on top and yet they always seem to either draw or lose um, it, it, a really interesting game I think because both managers clearly respect one another in certain ways and I thought that City were interesting in that game because usually with City we're always talking about how they, they try and pin fullbacks wide and they try and get that that space in between the lines that people can that, that players can attack but in this game I felt like they went re, they went super narrow so they had Grealish uh, on the one side and Mahrez on the other coming in and just leaving space for the for the fullbacks to, to push on and Liverpool just switch and play like, for, like yeah. I don't wonder if they were told that from the start I don't know if they predicted both what they teams were, were looking for, for width I think uh, sorry for, for narrowness whereas um, City were sort of doing it in a symmetrical way so yeah getting their wide players to come in to squeeze the, the back back line and have the fullbacks come come across whereas with Liverpool it was a little bit more asymmetric so we were seeing Salah moving across onto the right which we've been seeing a lot more at the end of last season um, and, and someone like Henderson or whoever they played like Harvey Elliott when he comes on just attacking that space in between the striker and and Salah but then with Luis Diaz we were I was saying anyway in, in the few videos that I've done on Liverpool Will we start seeing Liverpool sort of looking for width, but Diaz actually coming in quite a lot and leaving space for for Robertson to get down the outside and, and the, get the ball in the from width? Because Nunes plays through the middle, he's not going to budge from there. Plays with the, with the six yard area and he's advanced. Firmino would drop deep to allow the space more for Salah and, and Diaz right on the other side. So that'll change the way they play and changes the passes they can make going forward. But I thought because uh, Alexander Arnold's still coming inside and playing more like a midfielder, Henderson's covering him, or Robertson's still always on the outside. But City changed the way their fullbacks played halfway through it. So Cancelo was more inside for the start. Uh, Grealish wide left. I thought Grealish was rubbish. Yeah. People have been nice about him. He's, he was garbage, honestly. 100 million. He's all right. Uh, saying he should be doing more is like the most basic level of analysis anyone can ever do. But pass it earlier. Run at someone quicker. I don't know. Well, he's going he's gonna to have many more minutes this yeah. season. Well, based well, on the players point that I want to do, right? which I, I think is maybe interesting, is that by the end of the game, I thought City had a better read of Liverpool and were playing like uh, Walker, Diaz, Naki as essentially a three when they were in possession. And so that meant because they took Mares off and that meant they moved Bernardo Silva, who is amazing in this game. He's one of the, he's so good, Bernardo Silva. He's playing wide right. They were much better with him there. Foden came on, was superb at left wing. And then you had Alvarez come on and playing essentially as an extra striker there. So they changed the shape later on in the game and that was better. But Liverpool then scored two. Yeah, I was going to say, like I kind of forgot. I mean, I did watch the game. I left at 80 minutes. I think I missed the final goal. Uh, but based on everything you were just saying then, and then I was like, oh, I asked him if Man City are going to win the league. I forgot that they'd lost the game 3-1. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. That's why it's hard to define. I think Liverpool, Liverpool are better against bit. them in one v ones, but I think well, eleven v elevens. But I think City are better overall in the league. This is one of the things that I find really interesting at the moment is that you, so you get you get these system managers like Pep who they're all about 
control, knowing what you're doing, m moderating risk to make it as minimal as possible. And then you get managers like Klopp who use intensity to, to achieve their ends. And I just think that in some games, it's just much easier to motivate your players to win in certain areas. So uh, I, I know maybe going to the Champions League run last season, the, the Real Madrid did, but like with, with City, they controlled that game. Uh, against Real, both legs of that, that uh, pretty much to like the five minutes before the end, right? They did everything right, and then they got sucker punched by two two goals. And and in that five minutes, because you're so used to being clinical and controlled and and being measured in the way that you're playing, when those sorts of things happen, then I do think that the, you you get that discrepancy between like a t a, a team like Real Madrid who are like we're used to being in an uh, in a in a bad position. We're used to losing and being like, we can still get back into this. Yeah. Whereas with City, I think one of the big reasons why they have struggled in in Champions League football is because all it takes for that sort of approach to not work is those five minutes where where you let, let two goals in and then all of the, whatever it is, I, I can't do the, what's it, 175 minutes? It's what the police say, isn't it? When they're chasing a criminal, the police say, we, we don't have to be perfect all the time, but they do. You know, when they're on the wiretap, hey? Yeah, I mean that's kind of the same, I suppose. But um, <laughs> I, I suppose for me, for me, it's just like having to move between those levels of intensity. So for for City, you're always cerebral. You're always thinking. You're always sort of being like, if we do this, then this will happen. Whereas with teams like Real Madrid and, and Liverpool, because there's that intensity, you can just sometimes you're in a much better frame of mind to be able to. Hey to, to boss, be able to, meet yeah. me around the back of the uh, parking lot where I will sell you drugs. Whoops, said it on the phone. Hey. The police have it on the wire. Yeah? End of why, game. That's why City are going to win the league this season, because over over the course of a season, you you generally get the upside in a league. But they um, want the Champions League. They do. And let's discuss this more as the season goes on, because I imagine, you know, inevitably, they'll be the two best teams and we'll be forced to talk about them. Welcome back from the break. And before we get back to today's ordinary proceedings, I'm delighted to tell you that we have a special guest with us today. It's Mark McGettigan, better known as FPL General. That's right. For the next seven minutes, the FPL General himself is going to treat you to all the best possible tips, not only for who to pick in your fantasy team, but also for how to remain interested, because I always start and then stop after two game weeks when I've made a mistake and messed up. I'm sure plenty of people here listening do that too. Uh, but Mark kindly spared us some of his time. And let me tell you that you can read uh, a lot of his work on The Athletic. So, you know, do go and do that um, throughout the season to make sure that you are beating your friends and can then use that as emotional uh, battery uh, uh, to, to lord over them. Make sure that you're better than them because that's, the that's the main thing about having friends. If you're not better than them, you're worse than them. And that's that's a terrible thing. But anyway, here was the conversation that I had uh, with uh, with Mark, FPL General, earlier this week. I hope you enjoy it, and best of luck with the fantasy football season, everyone. Hi, Joe. Good to be here. Big fan of the podcast, so it's, it's nice to be on. Oh, thanks very much. We're very pleased to have you on. Uh, and the main reason for that is because, uh, you know, the season the season is just beginning. And I think many of our listeners will be drafting their FPL teams ahead of, uh, of the new season. I'm terrible at this, Mark. I'll just tell you up front, I'm a dreadful uh, fantasy player. I do what I think lots of people do. I sort of, I, I'm too keen at the beginning. I start early. You just said to me in the pre-record that you haven't even finished selecting your team yet. 
that's that sounds great. I would have already picked mine by now. And then by week three, I've sort of, uh, you know, I've, I've already uh, fallen behind in my friend and family leagues and I've stopped paying attention and don't open it again as of September. So I'm going to ask you a few questions today that maybe will help me with my problems and help our listeners with their problems too. The first of which would be, how do you maintain the uh, the sort of keenness and the interest to keep doing it every every week and do you always wait until just before the next game week starts before you finalize your teams yeah well for me it's fantasy's taken over my life so it's uh, when it's my biggest passion it's quite easy to come back every week and, and make a transfer and change your captain and haven't done well at it for a few years as well it's, it's I've, I've been bitten by the bug so I'm, I'm i'm in too deep now so it's in terms of of yeah, just staying interested. It's um, if you get off to a bad start or, or you find yourself losing interest. It's there's always there's always a very strong template of players that are very highly owned. So there's always you know diamonds in the rough somewhere. The low ownership players you got to go after your differentials that not many people have. So if you're in a mini league, for example, with with a few family members, you're kind of scoping out who are the common players that are in most of the family members' teams and you're trying to kind of go against the grain and try and, you know, spike that gem that no one else has. And, and captaincy is a big one for that. You get your double points for your captaincy. So if you go against the grain with, if you go against a popular captain and they have a quiet week and your differential captain does well, that's that's one big way to make up ground. If you had to summarise what's important about fantasy uh, football selection in three points, what would they be? You've got to have a flexibility in your squad. You've got to spread your cash around all four positions. You don't just pile it all into to your front line or your midfield. Defenders are very good nowadays. And I think fixtures is probably the most important thing. So you're trying to target teams that have a good run of maybe four, five, six fixtures, favourable fixtures. And then you're avoiding teams when obviously they've got a tricky run playing lots of teams from the top four and stuff like that. So yeah, fixtures and, and spreading your cash is very important. When you talk about defenders being good, I mean, I haven't played the game seriously for a few years, but I remember centre-backs always being useless because uh, they, they, there was no meaningful way for them to contribute points. Whereas, obviously, in the age of the fullback, it was great to have Trent Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson, for example, in your, in your team. Is that what you mean when you say fullbacks? Are, sorry, defenders are useful fullback positions? Yeah, the fantasy football landscape has changed quite a bit in the last couple of years because we've got the very attacking wing back, you know, your Trents, Reese James, Chilwells, all these kind of guys, Robertson. So it's very hard to justify buying a centre back when you can buy very exciting wing backs. They're going to get you clean sheets, but they've also got the potential to to score score and assist. So yeah, you'll see you'll see most hardcore managers that will have probably of the five defenders, at least four of them are going to be full backs slash wing backs. Uh, I'm aware that you won't have finalised your team yet, Mark, because the season <clears throat> has not yet begun. But would you give us any insight into what you're thinking right now, who you're thinking about selecting? Yeah, so at this stage of the season, when we're a week or two out from the start, I'm kind of absorbing information rather than, you know, playing around on the FPL website every day. But yeah, opinions are forming. You know, I think lots of the, the teams that finished in the top four or five last season have really good fixtures to begin with. So most managers are going to start with a core of eight or nine players from Liverpool, Man City, Arsenal, Tottenham and Chelsea. So at the moment, I'm looking at Mohamed Salah for a captaincy against newly promoted Fulham in game week one. Trent and Luis Diaz are probably going to be there. Holland's a very exciting new addition for fantasy managers and even players like Perisic at Tottenham. Perisic's only like 5.5 million, so he's very cheap. Obviously, ex-winger, He's a defender in fantasy, so that's very, very attractive. So, yeah, Gabriel Jesus as well, another one I think could be underpriced at Arsenal. 
Perisic seems really cheap, doesn't it? Are there, are there any other players like that that would be surprisingly cheap to listeners who haven't looked yet? Yeah, Jesus, as I mentioned, is is one of the big ones. But you've also got, I mentioned earlier, that centre-backs are not very attractive. But because of that, they've tried to tempt us with very cheap prices. So you can get players like Lewis Dunk, who's a goal-scoring centre-back, for £4.5 million. It's not the most exciting pick, but over the course of the season, you're probably going to get good bang for your buck there. So you've you've got to look at everyone, really. OK. And finally, Mark, we know it's very important to get off to, to a good start so that you don't feel demotivated come week two or three. Would you say that there's an element of chaos to the beginning. I mean, obviously, you can do all of your research, you can look at the fixtures, you can understand uh, the data from previous seasons. But to a certain extent, you're not re- you're not really able to pick based on form at all because we don't know whether you know maybe Salah feels a little lazy after the after the summer, and you're going to start with him as your captain. Would you say week one is maybe the hardest to predict in that sense? It definitely is because essentially we've got zero information really some people will put some stock into pre-season I don't really and, and like you say the first two or three game weeks things will happen you know players will perform well fantasy wise that nobody expected and then you'll have lots of people activating their first wild card quite early after three or four game weeks getting all the shiny new toys that look like going to be good options for the season so there's a very safe steady way to start a season you just kind of go with the players who did well maybe second half of last season Basically, keep it simple. Players from the big teams, you've got good fixtures. So like I said, your Man City, your Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea and Tottenham, if you build a core of players from those five teams, you won't have a disastrous start because most people are going to have them. Okay, and final question from me, Mark, would be what is the A, the the greatest ever point scoring game week you've had and B, uh, the player who scored you the most points in, in one game week? Best ever game week was probably a couple of years ago, four or five seasons ago, you get chips in FPL, so like a bench boost where you get all 15 players in a double game week, so you get 180 minutes out of a lot of them. So I I think probably 228 points in one game week, I think is my highest, but some people have headed towards 300. I think 278 in one week might be the highest, but that hasn't happened for quite a few years. Bench boost chips and stuff have been quite disappointing in previous seasons, but hopefully this will be the one. Best ever score from a single player. I think it was Mohamed Salah against Watford. I remember it very well because it was St. Patrick's Day and I was out celebrating and, and I had Salah captain, four goals and an assist against Watford. So I think it was 23 points, no, 27 points doubled. So a huge haul from Mohamed Salah. I don't think that's been beaten since. Well, there we go. Uh, Mark, thanks very much for your time and all the best ahead of the, the new season. I'll be doing my best to beat you this year. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ah, Jules Kunde signs for Barcelona. Do you know what? We've done too much Barcelona stuff recently. They can GTFO, and we'll talk about that another time. I'm sure you'll start playing, and yeah, you know, oh, so boring, isn't it? It's not boring. It's just, come on, how many times can I? Anyway, all or nothing. Arsenal on out on Thursday. You know, watch another one of those. I'll watch that. That'll be great. I won't watch that. I'll watch it and then we'll talk about it next week. How about that? Yep, fine. Deal. Kukurea to Man City. Is it, I mean, is it, is it ongoing, Seb? 
I'm sorry, I should make it clear, I didn't introduce that well at all. Manchester City uh, have attempted to buy Kukurea, who is a Brighton player. They've offered less money than Brighton will accept. Sorry, Seb, go ahead. No, I think that's about it. They have offered less money than Brighton will accept, and yep. Brighton are not for, for turning. They're not going to be they're not going to be bullied by a bigger side. So that's pretty sure. much the end of it as things stand, unless City change their approach. I find it quite funny. I, I enjoy that, that there, that there is a, a smaller team that feels capable of doing that. And also, I, I mean, surely £50 million is the price for a fullback now. That seems like the price that a Man City fullback is set at. Why would they think they could spend less money, Seb? Well, also, he's not really a fullback. In, I mean, that's not all he is. I mean, he's a fullback, he's a wingback, he's potentially a wide midfielder and also an, an attacking winger at a stretch. And so if you factor in that rarity into his price tag and you think about the kind of players that Brighton have sold in the past, so Ben White, or Benjamin White as he prefers to be known, £50 million to Arsenal, I don't think it's an unfair price. And given his age too. So it's it's a it's a strange one. It just seems like City have have offered something, offered an amount that they knew would be knocked back and then are willing to kind of play the uh, disenchanted player game for the rest of the transfer window. Cucurillo has apparently uh, issued a transfer request and Brighton don't seem to care about that an awful lot. So I don't think a lot's going to change. This is a classic football manager tactic for buying a player where you just offer a bit of money, the player gets unhappy, starts to cry about it, and then the club's like, oh, let's get rid of him, he's moaning all the time. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo, Seb, left Old Trafford before the end of Man United's friendly draw with uh, Rayo Vallecano. Apparently this is, this has happened before, not at Man United. I think at Juventus there was a suggestion that this has happened before. But um, there was also, you know... There were some videos of uh, his reaction to Eric Ten Hag giving him instruction. And listen, all we can do as mild observers is to kind of watch this and draw our own conclusions. We don't know the truth. Just, it does seem funny, doesn't it, Seb? Yeah, I would say that the way to describe it is he wasn't hugely engaged, not fully engaged in whatever Eric Ten Hag was trying to tell him on the touchline. And yeah, unfortunately, over the last couple of days, some footage has emerged of him very much being outside Old Trafford while there was a football match happening inside it, which is, I don't know. It feels like this is, it's not the best look, but it also feels as if this could, this story could change every 12 hours. And so what we say now might be a little bit uh, at a step by tomorrow, but it, it, it doesn't seem happy, does it? No, but let me say as well, like, you know, obviously I understand that, that, that there's a certain level of self-promotion to this, um, but uh, for a player who is... Um, seemingly doing everything possible to leave to announce yourself on Instagram as the king is returning or whatever to play your next you know to come back and play a friendly you think that's a bit out of step with reality isn't it like you're you're trying to leave and you call yourself the king yeah it's really tricky though because on the one hand you've got what have been mainly positive noises coming out of May United's pre-season fans starting to look at patterns of play and speed of passing movement and that kind of stuff and being generally enthused about it and feeling that there's quite a lot of buy-in from most of these players and that's that is a good few steps forward from where they were at the end of last season and then they still have what feels like a player from that yesterday a player who was front and center of a lot of things which a lot of the negative tone last season let's say because he did score a lot of goals but the tone wasn't good and he was part of that and yet he's still knocking about and from Ten Hag's perspective, it's not really a situation that he can manage because it's a Ronaldo is a business decision, really, ultimately. And I wouldn't. It, it's a it's a hell of an ask, though. If you've never if you've never managed a club of Man United size, 
And before you've even played your first competitive game, one of the things on your to-do list is essentially to go head-to-head with one of the most famous players of all time. That is pretty tricky. One of the upsides I would say about that, though, is all the sports films start with one of these sorts of themes, don't they? You know, you've got your kind of, you've got Moneyball, where Brad Pitt is sort of taking over the team more. And then they've got that old pro, the grizzled pro who, you know, is a little uncertain of what's happening. And he has that straight chat with him. Uh, what's his name? Justice. David Justice is the name of the player. And they they have a sort of frank exchange. He wins him over and then, you know, there's all uh, victory. I feel like that's a theme in many sports films. So if anything, perhaps this is just uh, one of the obstacles on the way to Eric Ten Hag's own sports film. And rightly so, nobody wants to pick that up. Dwight McNeil joined Everton uh, for £20 million. Yes. Does anyone want to discuss this? Yeah, I'll bring that one up. Mm-hmm. So I remember when Dwight McNeil broke through at Burnley, very exciting, playing off the left mostly in their 4-4-2, 4-4-1-1. Lots of chances created. People thought he could be an England kind of prospect as a winger. Looks like a good footballer. Uh, and in my head, he was still creating loads and loads of chances for Burnley to score and was still a really good sort of prospect. His numbers have gone down quite a lot over the last few seasons uh, to the point where he's not really creating anything. He created so many... So he created as many chances last season as Phil Foden with 10 games more played. I mean, you did that per 90, it makes him level roughly with Jamie Vardy who never creates chances. So a couple of seasons ago, he was putting in, what was it, like one chance per game or something? This is an open play um, chances created. A couple of seasons ago, maybe I think this is from the, what is it, 1920 season... So, because I used to, I remember writing about him a lot for the Telegraph, thinking he was a really good player, and he was the same amount of chances created as per ninety as Mark Noble, which isn't that exciting. Bukayo Saka, when he was still young and not playing every single game, um, he's still young now. Anthony Martial, you know what he's like. And then it goes uh, fewer chances created per ninety the following season, and then fewer again after that. Yeah. So now he's like level with players like Wilfred Ndidi, who's a defensive midfielder, and this guy's meant to be either an attacking winger on the left. Uh, I think he started playing a lot more off the right for Burnley at a certain point as well. Well, could it could it be environmental now that he's left Burnley, a team who, who let's be fair, uh, to Dwight McNeil, weren't really creating many chances at all as a team? Uh, could it be environmental, John? Yes, but I suppose the worry is is that Everton were a team who narrowly avoided relegation last season as well. But you can do interesting things with him. I think he's a bit more flexible. And just because, like you say, he broke in, broke in as a sort of classic left wide left player in a 4-4-2 under Burnley and, and everyone was excited about that but um, I, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about how you can actually play him a little bit more, more centrally if you want he's got really good off-ball numbers or has done in the past and what it, it's been recently so uh, again you get a little bit of flexibility there because you could feasibly play him as, as more of a central option as well um, but I, th- I think it's a, I think it's a good bit, bit of business for them to be honest It seems like a good price for Everton considering what they normally play for players Yeah like they, they've got to sell players off They've got to bring players in cheaper. And I think McNeil, he does have Premier League quality. And the question is going to be like, will the system suit him? Um, And yeah. Well, there we go. That's very exciting. Seb, let's take a trip to Europe now, please. I'd love to hear about Torino's backroom issues. Hey, so this is a this is the point at which we promote something from the Athletic and direct people towards a James Horncastle article from last week in which he described a, a physical confrontation between Torino sporting director and their coach mm. um, over the club's summer or lack of summer recruiting. Uh, it's quite dramatic. And also, actually, I, I think a lot of the, the someone, some uh, some plucky onlooker managed to 
capture some footage of this so you can watch it happen in real time it's in the car park um, isn't it don't they filming it from the, inside yeah yes it is yeah and it's um you really can call it a physical confrontation it is very italian very expressive it does look like it's going to get very physical at one point and yeah it's not if you're a fan of torino it's not something that you see 10 days before the season starts and think oh this is going to go well doesn't seem like that and they've also lost an awful lot they um they uh i cannot remember his name Bellotti has gone on a free transfer hasn't been signed by anybody he's kind of a talismanic figure within that dressing room i, I think yeah, as a goal scorer, his reputation declined a little bit throughout his mid to late 20s, but um, still very important, no replacement. And Torino had a pretty good season last year in comparison to the one before. And there's been no attempt to, well, outwardly, there's been no real attempt to this point to kind of build on that progress from being relegation threatened 18 months ago to sort of upwardly mobile mid-table um, last season. You want to see a little bit more uh, because they're quite a good team to watch, and yet, yeah, it doesn't look like the mood is super terrific at Torino. No, watch the video. I, I think, to be honest, watch the video, read James's wonderful article. Uh, between those two very, very descriptive pieces of content, I would suggest not going to go well at Torino. Okay. Well, uh, somewhere it might go well, Bayern Munich 5, 3 RB Leipzig. Now, you say this scoreline actually flattered Leipzig. Oh, 100%. Uh, Bayern Munich were excellent. Uh, I think this is really more of a kind of a 5-1, 6-2 type of game. Sadio Mane scored his first goals for Bayern Munich, but had another two disallowed. Mane's really was, he, was he the nine? Yeah, so this is really interesting. The thing I'd compare it to was uh, a bit of an obscure reference. But, so in 1992, um, Rienz Mikkel's Dutch team, obviously they had uh, Dennis Bergkamp and Marco van Basten. Um Burkamp obviously is a 10. Van Basten, despite being like one of the best centre forwards in the world at that point, was almost used as a little bit of a decoy, as a kind of a disruptor. And I think Bayern Munich are playing a little bit of a different system. So Manny is the nine, Messiala from the left, Muller generally from the right, Gnabry in a kind of a, a number 10 position, sometimes changing and alternating with Muller. But what you had is Manny moving around and Manny is a threat in every position because he does so many things so, so, so well. And a lot of these players, uh, a lot of the, the supporting players moving into the space behind and um, around the defence that he was kind of creating. So when he would move, someone would go with him, creating a fracture, be exploited. And even at this stage where you'd imagine chemistry is pretty limited, uh, off the ball understanding still you know, works in progress. It was terrifying what they were able to do to Leipzig. The, I think it's the, um, the second goal. If you watch what, if you watch that move develop, the point where um, Nabry gives the the ball across the the six yard box for for Manny to um, to Manny, for Manny to convert. If you look at the pass before, where all I think three Leipzig players step out and leave themselves facing a kind of three on one. I think this is a kind of a, a template for what you're likely to see from Bayern is, is people having to to adjust to what a lot of multitaskers are able to do in concert with one another. Um, and it's also a really interesting departure from what they were with Lewandowski because Lewandowski became a little bit more selfless as his career wore on, but he was quite a static player. 
whereas Manny is absolutely not. And um, well, that's what I was going to ask. Actually, I mean, you know, the, the, the obvious thought here is that um, Lewandowski is a, is a wonderful goal scorer, no longer at, at the team. And you would think that uh, how will how will Bayern replicate those goals? Is there something to be said, John? I know you watch this game as well. For for uh, in in the space where Lewandowski was bringing in a very different sort of player and enabling the skill set of the uh, the players who used to surround Lewandowski, bringing more out of them as well as a replacement. Yeah, I found this game really interesting, largely because I haven't really watched much Bayern under Julian Nagelsmann. Um, and that's not because I don't watch German football. It's just because I, I don't like watching Bayern win every week. Um, so I found this one really interesting because I've been spending a lot of my time being like, oh, well, you know, Julian Nagelsmann broke through the Red Bull system, but it's not really a Red Bull coach. But what really struck me was that so much of what he was doing you can still see the the ideas of, of of red bull football in there and obviously red bull football is heavily system based um and i think bringing someone like sadio mane who you know is going to be able to be an intense presser is going to be able to be flexible is able to play in those areas in the in the central spaces as well i think makes a, a big difference for someone like julian nagelsmann so uh, yeah I, I put out a tweet just saying i was surprised at how much of that red bull um like blueprint and prototype you could see in, in the style of play, uh, which generated some interesting discussion. Because obviously there's big differences between the way that he's playing, but it's something that I find really interesting at the moment is this idea that, okay, you start out work, working in a certain system, um, then you recognise that the system has problems. So you solve those problems. And a lot of people say, well, you know, Julian Nagelsmann solved those problems by thinking about structure and possession a little bit more. And um, so they will... I think a lot of the tactics nerds will say, you know, he's much closer to someone like Thomas Tuchel or or, or Guardiola or someone like that. But actually, the, the genealogy there, the fact that he's come from a system and used other people to sort of solve the problems in his system means that there's still that hallmark of, of Red Bull football behind there. So this just the idea of like attacking centrally, playing penetrative passes through the middle, having this sort of block of four attacking players um, who are moving quite fluidly in central spaces and trying to work the ball in that way. Um, I just found it really, really fascinating. So it'd be interesting to see how, how Bayern are going to look this season if they're going to go back to that sort of more Red Bully uh, sort of more direct approach. I wonder whether there's going to be a controversy, John, in the sense that, like, I was interested to see Miziala start from the left. I know he moved around, but... Um, and Sani did that thing. Lira Sani scored um, the fifth goal, but he did that, that thing that sort of disgruntled players do where he scored and he made sure everybody knew that he really wasn't very, very happy about not starting the game. And I think that's a... I think incompatibility is probably too strong a word, but it's clear to me that Miziala is going to suit what that attack does more than Sane does is like I know he's got sort of different capabilities but he's a bit more closer a bit closer to kind of orthodox winger territory um but problem being is Bayern spent an awful lot of money to bring him there and I've spent quite a lot this summer too and so what do you do with a player like that if you're going to go in the kind of Miziala direction and you can't really play Sane Sane's not going to replicate what Muller does he is not um he's not he's just not as good as Nabry either um, and he can't play, obviously, as a as a nine. He's becoming the elite nearly player so, at the moment, isn't he? He's he's a really good player. I love watching. As best, I love watching Leroy Sané play. But uh, it's just a little bit out of step with the club's evolution um, or their kind of journey towards where they're going. It's the perennial system manager thing, isn't it? Sort of like at what point does when you're at that elite level, when you have to bring in those players who are just clearly brilliant, regardless of the system you're always going to struggle to, to, to play them. And, and so to a sense, you're, in a sense, your, your system is always going to suffer for it. And so we talked about it with Cristiano Ronaldo before, right? Yeah. He's going to score goals, but he's also going to 
have a negative impact on the system and, and your question is like how do you find that balance how do you say actually it's better for us to disrupt the system because we know that he's going to score a certain amount of goals versus it's better not to play him because we will generate more goals as a system without him in it the big questions, the big, big questions. all here on the TIFO podcast yeah well the thing I, I think about this result for Bayern Munich is I reckon they've got a pretty good chance of winning the league again for the 11th time in a row. I quite like them to win the European Cup, actually. Like, I, I, actually. I think the way they play now, with, without Lewandowski, like, lovely player, obviously, wonderful player, but um, the way they play, you can see that troubling defences more than what they were mm. doing before. Um, I felt like Bayern's approach before, particularly in Europe, like, I think one of the problems they experienced against Villarreal is that they're tuned to play with a lot of possession, yes, but also... Um, camped in that final third, locking teams inside their own sort of defensive areas, defensive zones. And Lewandowski, there really isn't a better kind of better finisher from 12 yards. I can't remember a better one in the last sort of 10, 20 years. He's, he's brilliant. Mane allows you to change, to kind of flex out of an approach if you need to. If you get into trouble in a, an away tie in Europe, for instance, you've got a, a versatility there that is actually quite frightening. Mm. And it just depends how quickly it comes together. But um very interesting, very exciting. And it was a really powerful performance. I know 5-3 makes it sound like it was just a sort of back and forwards basketball type game. No, it was like a huge kind of statement of intent, um, which is, feels kind of depressing because you, you start every season thinking, I, I sh- as long as it's still competitive by March, then I'll take that as a Bundesliga season. But um, I fear it might not be. Okay, well, there we go. More uh, from the Bundesliga to come this season's TIFO Football Podcast. Uh, before we hear from John about Rene Maric moving to, to Leeds, we must remember, of course, the Premier League begins this coming weekend. I believe Friday, Arsenal play Crystal Palace. Uh, that'd be the first game. Now, JJ, you were very impressed uh, with Arsenal over the weekend. You covered a friendly in which they beat Sevilla 6-0. Gabriel Jesus looking a fine thang. Yes. Uh, what do you believe? Well, Sevilla did look, so you have to caveat with saying Sevilla didn't look quite ready yet. Sure. Um, and James, I phoned James McNicholas to get his take on this game as well before I did that. And he said a very similar thing. that that's, They don't look quite... It wasn't a proper test, right? Sure. James, James McNicholas, Arsenal writer for The Athletic, by the way, who you can follow online. You should. Yes. Good guy. Good guy. Funny dude. Uh, Arsenal looked great. And I think the things Arteta's been trying to do, we could sort of see over the last couple of seasons what he's roughly trying to do. At times, I haven't understood why there's no striker in the box. But what I think we've learned from Jesus replacing Lacazette is it's because Lacazette was shit. <laughs> so he's not doing what Jesus is supposed to. And Jesus is basically covering three positions at once, like left wing, right wing, up front. And they're all swapping constantly. He was rotating with Martinelli quite a lot. Saka was also swapping with him to join him with it. Um, Jack is playing in like a, as an eight. And then yeah, it's just, it seems to be working. He had Zinchenko. And um, uh, the right back, who's played Benjamin White, at right back, as a centre back, but they played him at right back and they were coming into the middle, into midfield at certain times to be inverted fullbacks, very much like Pep Guardiola. So I wonder if that's inspired by Guardiola or whether Arteta was some, you know, influential in what Guardiola was doing at the time. Maybe it's, I think that's interesting who influenced who with little decisions. I think it was probably Guardiola. It could have been, but it might be in a discussion. Like some of the best things we've done, Joe, you claim credit for, but maybe it was me who said it. Do you know what always worries me about preseason though? Is that sort of I, I watched the hardest of this game, I didn't watch it in full, so um caveat there. But when you play games between Premier League teams, La Liga teams, Serie A teams, like it's the different stages of preparation and particularly different stages of conditioning, which always worries me because um you 
just makes such a difference uh, and it exaggerates strengths and negates weaknesses. And it just, it's always something that makes me back off a little bit in preseason. Well, you, you have to naturally. I mean, it makes total sense. Like the first Man United game we saw them play looked really good. But like the, when I say they look really good, I don't mean because they've battered Sevilla. It's because I can see the things they've done in a tra- on the training ground and what they're trying to achieve. And it's been applied properly. And they look like they can control counterattacks. They look like they can change between being a team that can play in transition and also control possession. Uh, the players they have are better than the ones they've had before. They're also, what I like about the team he's assembled is they're quite young. And I think you get a lot of hunger and drive from that. You get a little bit of, like a perfect amount of chaos. So he's built a team he wants to have control of the ball, but the youngsters tend to do erratic things and they'll try things that maybe you don't get with older heads. They've done learned it. I think it's been built really well. I do think <laughs> something will happen at Crystal Palace. It's got this feeling that it'll be so good and they'll be so full of confidence that something happens. Maybe that Crystal Palace will just score a stupid goal from a corner or something like that. But I think Arsenal will do really well. And based on what I saw there, I think they'll be uh, very good this season and could challenge for top four. Well, my next my next question, JJ, Bill, was um, was a suggestion by Seb here, perhaps that we could all pick a, a, a you know a bit of a dark horse for uh, for maybe the Premier League for for Europe. Not suggesting, of course, that Arsenal will win the Premier League or, or any of the European Cups that they're participating in. But um, do you think they could be in the top four there, there or thereabouts? Could they, could are they good enough to finish third? Um, yeah, I think they'll they'll be there. I think Spurs are going to be good this year. I think Seb will tell me otherwise, but I think I can't see past. Con- I think Conte's one of the best managers we've seen in good transfer window as well. A good transfer window, he's got good players, he's got a lot of good attacking options, but he's like obsessed with the defending being good and he's just a crazy manager that will get a certain amount out of you for a certain amount of time. He's not their long-term manager. If he can get it right this season, this would be where they could possibly do it. But then Spurs are the same likelihood to fall apart when they shouldn't, as Arsenal have tended to in the past. Arsenal nearly got over the line last time, but it was Spurs who had the mentality that got over it. And I think that's very relevant. And that's where the experience comes in versus the youth of the Arsenal team. And Spurs being able to do that in the final parts of the season is why I think there'll be a. I think, I think I could see Man United being good in preseason, and then they're going to have a bad time because the same things will happen. Like they always happen. Uh, well, don't take all the teams because John, uh, which team would you like to suggest are a dark horse? I mean, I agree. I think the top six is going to be amazing this this time round. I think that's important because we've not really had a. I don't think any of them. I don't think all of them are going to be great, but I don't think any of them are going to be bad. Uh, and I think that's going to be an, an interesting battle for for top four. I think yeah. I think Arsenal will surprise people. Um, I used to be a, a non-believer in Arteta, uh, and over the course of like the last season, I think I've become much more of a believer in in Arteta. Um, That's one of the reasons I'm excited for that all or nothing uh, video because you get to see what it is he's actually doing behind the scenes, and it's a lot of things you'll want to happen. You'll tell your players to do, and they just don't do them. And this is the thing; those frustrated managers must there must be so many star managers that never made it because certain people didn't do what they wanted to do. But then equally are you a good manager because you can make people do what you want them to do and that's the different part of it that becomes man management well it's all a bit of mixture a bit of luck a bit of skill Chelsea I think will be interesting because I think they may be a dark horse in the opposite sense they may be um, I, I don't know but it feels to me as though there's a lot going on at that club at the moment and um, Thomas Tuchel in those moments when there's a lot going on at a club can sometimes brush people the wrong way and so yeah, lots, lots going on in terms of the off-field stuff and maybe not bringing in as many players as they might to do the on-field stuff as well. Okay. Seb, have you got yourself a dark horse? Yeah, not in the top six sense, but I think Southampton will be a lot better than people expect. Oh. Just because if you look at their... A real dark horse. Real dark Not horse. just they one have... of the best teams that these two guys talked about. No, I, I, think they might, um, I think they might break into the top half just because they've improved in every position pretty much or every position they needed to. New goalkeeper, Gavin Bazzini's there. Um, Bella Kochap from, uh, I think, came from Bochum. 
um, mm-hmm. over the summer. Um, they've got Joe Rebo, I think is really interesting. I think Joe Rebo is a little bit underpriced. Um, I think they only paid about sort of eight or nine million pounds for him. He scored a delicious goal at the weekend. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, he really did. Yeah. yeah. And they've also signed um, Romeo Lavia from Manchester City, who it's interesting because that's an awful lot of money to pay for someone with so little Premier League, or with so little senior experience. I think he only had a couple of minutes, if that, um, of of senior football. And they spent £50 million on him, which is a huge amount of money. But there's quite a lot of pieces there. Like, I've got a few questions about how Hartsnatal is going to be able to wrangle all of them because it seems like his authority is, is diminished a little bit at the club. Um, his reputation and it's kind of stuck with the fans and the players. Things haven't been going well for quite a while or haven't been going as well as they could have done. But... Um, it's an interesting group. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing them. I'll put it that way. Well, my dark horse, I think I would say, is Real Madrid. <laughs> no, not that. I don't have a dark horse. But I am interested to see how certain teams play this season. It's very exciting. Uh, PSG, one of them, under Christophe Galtier. I'm sure we'll talk about them more as uh, time goes on. But the, but the post-duels era to the, to the now system era, exciting transition. I look, look, forward, to, look forward to seeing that. I think Aston Villa is really interesting because Steven Gerrard, right, they're going to expect an awful lot of him. They spent quite a lot of money on some players. He's proven that he knows how to build a team that can compete at a higher level each time with Rangers. But I wonder what's going to happen if in like three months, four months, they're just middle lower table, sure. which is very likely where they'll be. And whether they go, hmm, are we seeing enough here to yeah. keep going with it? Because Michael Beale, who's his tactical wizard. He's gone. That's the big one, yeah. So he's gone. He was Beale's gone. From what I understand of it, from various Rangers reporters that I follow over the time, uh, Beale is really highly rated amongst the coaching community. He also did a lot of the tactical work and the first team training at Rangers. So a lot of the stuff that they did was designed around that. Gerard would say, I want this to happen. And then he would make that happen. But that's very similar at Man United. Alex Ferguson would tell Rennie Mullenstein, he told me that this is what happened at Man United back in the day when they were really good, that Ferguson would say, I want to play like this, I want to see it look like this, I want this to happen there, and then he would just let the coaches, yeah, and then Mullenstein and everyone else, they would go and figure out how to do that. Carlos Quiroz, for example. Exactly, McLaren, all that sort of stuff, that's how they did it. So um, I think this will be a real show of what Gerard does as a manager and if he can get a little bit more out of them, because I think them, all those sort of teams there, Wolves, those Newcastle, they'll all be mixed around a little same bit and it'll be a lot of luck here and there. I think the underlying XG numbers will be very important this season. And now we are moving on to Rene Marich, uh, to Leeds. You've written ass man here, John. Is he an ass man? Oh, assistant manager. Ass man, assistant manager. Okay, good to know. Yeah, um, he is, uh, I suppose, the, the sort of godfather of like the tactics nerds because he was one of the guys who started Spielverlagerung. Yes. The, uh, the German tactics blog a long time ago. Got noticed by Thomas Tuchel. Uh, ended up working in the Red Bull system. So worked with Marco Rosa for a while who was uh, the Gladbach manager and then uh, more recently the Dortmund manager as well. Um, and yeah, he's been made the, the assistant manager of, of Leeds. Uh, obviously, Jesse Marsh has those links to Red Bull. It's an interesting one in terms of the appointment because um, I, I, there was a lot of noise about Jesse Marsh wanting Chris Armas as his assistant manager, who was the assistant under 
um, Rangnick. Uh, so yeah, there was there was a little bit of controversy about that, but it seems as though I, I suspect that maybe the club wanted to bring in Maric uh, over over Armas because of optics. It's got a bit of a profile to him, you know, like he's he's known. Yeah, yeah, and really interesting. Like um, I think a lot of people think of him as being a tactics nerd, but he he was a, he was a he was a decent football player. I don't think he ever played to any professional level, but I think he had injury issues. But he is a decent player and started coaching very early on, uh, and so has always done tactics from that sort of more pastoral side of things and I was listening to a couple of interviews with them this morning actually one uh, for the Analytics FC podcast um, and another one on the Melissa Reddy podcast as well um, and he he's very clear like when he talks about coaching that he thinks of coaching as working with players he talks about football as being the players game not the not the coach's game um, and so the impression I get is that because I think he's always been in the Red Bull system but people always say well he's not really a Red Bull sort of tactical guru um he he has like a, a much broader sense of, of tactics than that but i think he'll come in and just sort of work as a as a coach and and he talks about wanting to improve improve players within whichever system he's is in so whether or not he's going to have a huge impact in the way that jesse marsh is going to set up i don't know uh, but he's definitely an interesting appointment great well there we go that brings us to the end of today's tifo football podcast uh thank you jonathan dog mckenzie jj bull the bullet Yes. Sebastian Stafford Bloor, Auf Wiedersehen and Dankeschön. Dankeschön, Herr Devine. Yes. We'll be back next week where we will be covering the opening weekend of the Premier League. Very exciting stuff. All right. Until then, thanks to producer Craig and uh, uh, thanks to uh, to editor editor Sean, Sean Thorne. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. Oh, take care. Bye. The Athletic. <laughs>